I'm just going just to pray. Uh, Father, we just, uh, we do ask, I ask for your help this morning. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out. Bring your word alive. This is your words, Lord, that uh, divides bone and marrow and it does us good. It feeds our soul, it encourages and corrects and sets our feet on a rock again. And I pray, Lord, that your word will come alive to us. Holy Spirit, help me to communicate. Well, give us hearts to take in what you want to say and strengthen and encourage us as a people this morning, Lord. Amen. 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 We're looking at um, three verses in 1 Peter. We're going to look at verses 13 through to around verse 15. And I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. I'm just going to read you a little speech, first of all. And it was by a guy called Colonel Tim Collins. Have him? In 2003, on the, on the 19th of March 2003, he led a battalion of the Irish Rangers into the Iraqi uh, war. It was the, the first, first round of the Iraqi war. And, uh, and, and he, it's a famous speech, George Bush loved it and whacked up on his wall and all sorts. But he wrote this, just listen to it. He says, uh, he says, we go to liberate, not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. Uh, we are entering Iraq to a free people. And the only flag which will be flown in their ancient land is their own. There are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, remember to be magnanimous in victory. Now, I'm all creaky and croaky, does that mean? Huh? It's just being weird. Okay. Let's try it. Try to move, I've got to preach still. Um, now, this isn't a, a um, kind of, you know, warmongering preach this morning, but he spoke that. And for us, we might have a range of opinions about that, think, well, I'm not sure I agree with that political opinion and all the rest of it. But for the guys who were there in his battalion about to go over the battle lines, for them, this was food for their soul. For them, this wasn't a political, well, is this right or is this wrong? This was their man speaking to them as they go into battle, knowing that some perhaps wouldn't come back. And I want to present uh, one Peter this morning to you in that context. It's a battle letter. It's a letter written by a guy in Rome, facing persecution. He's going to suffer a martyr's death. Steph touched on that a, a few weeks ago. And he's writing to a group of about five churches who are facing ferocious persecution uh, under Nero. It's a battle letter. It's the kind of letter that will be delivered at night. It's the kind of letter that, that the husband of a family would open the door, have a look, is it, is, it a tr- is it trying to find out some other believers? Is it a way of just Nero trying to track down some more believers? It's the kind of thing that will be taken in and shut the door quickly. Because there is massive persecution taking place. Now I want to just... <laughs> I want that to stop. I want <laughs> to... Um, what I preach this morning, I hope, looking at the context of not only their context, but I want to argue that our situation here and now is as ferocious as the, the situation that these believers found themselves in. And therefore, the two or three verses we look at given the fact that this is a battlefield letter written to believers in the face of a ferocious enemy under massive persecution, suddenly the scriptures take on a new sense of meaning. And I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen this morning. So, a bit of context. Um, Nero, this guy, I've just read a little bit of him, historian Harold Mattingly, I've tracked him down on the internet, he says that uh, in 64 AD, the Roman emperor Caesar Nero attempted to systematically exterminate all people who professed faith in the newfound Christian religion. Uh, he was, uh, the, the fire broke out in Rome, they blamed the Christians, reprobates, that's what they thought of them as, as. 
And so there was that going on. And there was also the fact that he was utterly insane. If you started to read him, I stopped reading about him. It's just a bit mucky, really. But a guy was an incestuous, murdering man. He murdered his mother, murdered his sister. He enjoyed the pain of people. It's just disgusting. He was absolutely insane. And it says about him, historians say about him, he not only took pleasure in people's pain, but he delighted in the idea of wiping the Christians from the face of the earth. That's the context that Peter's writing into. That's Peter's own context. He's, he's going to suffer under this guy. And this letter isn't a nice, it's not a seminar. It's not a, a Christian retreat. It's a letter going to people who are in fear for their life because an enemy is knocking at their door, wants to wipe them out. And that's, that, that's very much the idea here. And, um, and I want to argue from that that, it's, that the enemy that we face is more ferocious than Nero ever was. And when you read about him, just the wickedness in that man, is, is, he had, he had, there is more wickedness in... in um, sorry, I'm saying that wrong. But the wickedness in him and his intention to wipe out God's people and to bring an end to the... the uh, um, forwarding of God's purposes is as nothing compared to the intent in Satan's heart to destroy God's people and to prevent the forwarding of the gospel and the rescuing of men and women. It's as nothing in comparison. So we read this letter and the verses we look at, we read them in that context and we understand them in that context and we're going to hopefully spend a bit of time just packing that out a little bit. And I think the danger for us is... See, if you talk to an African, I'm no expert on this, but I understand that in Africa, people are very aware of good and evil. They're very uh, attuned to the to, to spiritual realm. And I'm not. And I think there's something about hardship and poverty and the fact that it's in your face that makes you realise there is just wickedness. There's wickedness. And, and it's just, there's just an instant kind of correlation with the fact that it's in my face, I see it, and I understand that of course there's a, 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 there's a spiritual realm, and of course evil uh, exists in, in, in a spiritual way. But for us, I, I think for myself, I just live in ignorance of it. I'm unaware, it's not I don't believe it, I'm theologically persuaded of, of it, and we'll look at that in a moment, but I'm just unaware of it. I saw a film um, a couple, about a year or so ago, and it was about um, the, the atrocities in, in Rwanda, I think, between Tutsi and, and Hutu, and um, oh, I, I watched this film, and uh, a million or so people just wiped out. And then I saw at the end they just had sort of character profiles because obviously the actors played played certain parts, and then you saw the real people who, who were in those roles. And then I realised in about ninety two, ninety three, I think it was, and then I started thinking, what was I doing ninety two, ninety three? I was uh, I was just out of college course, I think, and uh, just started met him, and life was good, life was great oblivious, like there's this kind of parallel world, there's me, life is good, life is great, just been born again, you know, I'm not, and I'm not one for feeling guilty or bad about my circumstances, God appoints times and places, but I'm merrily going on, and over here, there is a million people being wiped out, and I'm unaware of it, oblivious to what's going on, now we're not all like that, that's, that, that's me, but I think it's, 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 we're like that in terms of the battle that rages around us in terms of Satan and the spiritual realm. So, that's where we're going to go this morning. We understand the verses 13 to 15 in that context. And I'm just going to read them. Um, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is, uh, who called you is holy or set apart, you also be set apart in all your conduct. So, we have an enemy as ferocious, more ferocious than Nero ever was, and I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, his name is Satan. In the beginning, God made all things good. Uh, Genesis 1.31, all things in the spiritual realm, all things physically in creation were good. By Genesis 3, that has changed. Suddenly, in Genesis 3, there is uh, something that's not good. And it's Satan in the form of a servant. He tempts Eve, and you know the story. There's a change between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. And what's uh, happened there, there was an uprising or a rebellion in the heavenlies, angelic beings taking... Uh, um, unhappy with their allotted position that God had given them, and they turned. And if that sounds a bit weird, and, uh, but let me pack that out with some scriptures. 2 Peter, uh, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 4, he's making the point that um, uh, um, false teachers are going to get theirs, basically. You know, false teachers come around, you watch out, you're going to get yours, is basically what he's saying. And he makes that point by saying, for if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them down into hell and commit them to chains of gloomy darkness, well, you're, they're going to get theirs as well. That's the point he's making. But it's helpful for us, because we understand angels have sinned. So there was a fall, there was a turning against God. In Jude, verse 6, Jude says, um, uh, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment. There was a turning. There were angels who are not happy with their position. So they turned. And there was, a, there was what's described as a rebellion in the heavenlies. Angelic beings that turned unhappy with their position against God. And that's what happened. All things were good, and then suddenly they weren't. And that is what happened, according to Scripture. Um, Satan is the head of this demonic rebellion. Revelation 12.2 says, Satan, the deceiver of the world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The head of this rebellion is Satan. That's his name. His name means um, uh, adversary. It means adversary. In the New Testament, devil uh, is given that title. It means slanderer. In Job 1, God speaks to Satan a commandment, and Satan comes, and he says, from where have you come? Satan answers the Lord, and he says, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And this rebellion that took place didn't remain in the heavenlies, it came to the earth. Satan says, I've been walking up and down, to and fro. Now, he's not free, he's not free, but he's given a great deal of freedom. God has given him permission, his sovereignty allows him to act in that way. It says, I'm walking to and fro in the earth. Satan is clearly, uh, he's the leader of this uh, rebellion. Why is this uh, relevant to us? Well, uh, in Matthew 12, it says, um, uh, read that, there's a story there, Jesus heals a woman with a, um, uh, sorry, a a guy with, uh, who's blind and mute, a disabled man, a demonised man, and uh, he casts out the demon, and the people are amazed, is this the son of David? Wow. Knocked out, teach with authority. And the Pharisees are all a bit kind of gnarly about it. Oh, it's the devil that's doing that. He's using the devil's power, which is a bit stupid because if you know, the devil's casting out the devil, which is the point he makes, how can a kingdom divided stand? And Jesus makes the point that how can I be doing that with the devil's power? I'm casting out demons. That'd be ridiculous. But he then goes on to say, therefore if it's by the, uh, uh, by the Spirit of God that I cast these things out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he says, uh, then says, this little picture, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? 
Then indeed he may plunder his house. And he just says this little picture, which we get all sorts of funny things on it, but basically the picture in context, Jesus is saying the strong man is Satan, the house is his world, is this, is this world, that's where he lives, within the people who have not yet come to faith in Christ, this is his home. This is where he lives. He roams to and fro within it. This is where he lives. This is his place. And, um, and the one who binds a strong man is Christ. That's, who, he, that's who, who, who does that. And that's it's Jesus who has bound him, probably during his, um, it's a reference to when he overcame him in, in the wilderness, but ultimately upon the cross when he disarms principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them. It's Christ who binds the strong man. It's his work that has done that. That's what the picture is talking about. And we focus, rightly so, on the victory of Christ, but the other thing to understand is he is a strong man, and this is his house, and this is where he lives. And it's important that we understand that. He lives here. He roams to and fro. He inhabits the lives of unbelievers. We'll come to that in a moment. He oppresses the lives of the person in Christ. This is his house. The Bible gives him other names. The ruler of this world, Jesus says. That's shocking. Satan is described as the ruler of this world. The Lord of lords and King of kings, the one for whom all things, by whom all things and for whom all things have been created, speaks of Satan as the ruler of this world. He rules. He rules. That's what Jesus says, John 12. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's not confined to a nation or to a place. I get a bit funny when people say it's really dark, it's a really dark place. I never know what they mean by that. Satan's not confined to a place or a territory. Now, there might be more wickedness in a certain place. No, but, but to understand it as what seems really over there. No, he runs free across the earth. He's allowed to do that. God's given him the freedom to do that. It is given. It's not taken, it's given. It's very important. But nonetheless, he's known as the evil one. He's the God of this age, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I mean... I, People who talk about it, the devil as old, you know, I'm not in that camp where it's just old, silly Satan. It's not, what, it's not how Jesus described him. He is the ruler of this world. Other things about me is sin from the beginning. From the beginning of creation, he is sin. That's what it says in 1 John. He is a murderer. He destroys. He brings death. That's what he does. He delights. This is his house. His house is full of it. I mean, he loves it. Creation being slowly destroyed. Destruction, people, nation against nation, uprising. This is it's what it tastes like. This, you go into somebody's house, you get a feel for what it's like. This is his house. It's what it's like. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is a liar. He's, with Alice's story, he is a liar. He is a liar. Why is it that I'm reminded of my past sin? Why is that? God says, I've separated it from you as far as the east is to the west. It's in the deepest sea. Why am I reminded of that? Why? Sometimes it's because I've, I just need to, God's word needs to kind of get a further grip in my heart. But I have an enemy. It's not just, well, I need to be more diligent in the scriptures. There is that, but I have an enemy. We, we are to understand that. Um, 
He's the accuser of the brothers night and day, Revelation 12. Night and day. Something, it says before the throne of God. Somehow, I sort of imagine a courtroom scene with some nasty dictator being wheeled out and him just gnashing and gnashing away. You sometimes see it in the papers, certain dictators, unwilling to kind of bow to the rule of law within a court. And they just, no, 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 no. Nash, 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 nash. But night and day. Night and day we're brought before the throne of God, accused, accused, accused. He is incessant, unstopping. He is ferocious. He is utterly bent on the ruin of God's people. This is the picture of the Bible that the Bible gives him. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to the gospel. Why don't people turn to Christ? It's not simply that we're not culturally relevant. It's not some fault within us, though there are things to learn and to do, but we have, he's the ruler of this world. They are in his house. That's what they know. The shocking uh, um, uh, uh, thing that took place in Austria. That wickedness there. That father. Sorry? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's a picture. There's a strong man. Locked. And and within that basement, locked in. I don't know anything else. Never experienced anything else. Shut away. That's, that's a picture of the unbeliever, of, the, of a person who has not yet come to know the joy of freedom and forgiveness of sin. We shouldn't be surprised, in one sense, um, that it's not about methods and strategy, though they're important, but the Bible says he blinds people's mind to the gospel. It's a spiritual thing. It speaks in Galatians 4, he's enslaved humanity. It says, um, uh, oh, there are other scriptures here. I'll stop in a minute. A disabling spirit upon a woman, Luke 13. Her physical condition. Why? Not all, not all sickness is, is as a result of Satan's work, but Satan ruins bodies. He does destroy bodies. He is at work bringing sickness in people's bodies. Luke 13 is an example of that. And of the mind. Legion, the demoniac, full of demons living as a naked man with supernatural strength, unable, um, totally rejected by society, he would be a man cursed from God in the eyes of anybody in that community, but totally ruined. Why? Because Satan is at work, because Satan destroys. Because he he destroys the mind as well as the body. That's what he does. Peter writes this letter to believers facing a ferocious uh, persecution and enemy. And as we look at these scriptures now, I want us just to look at them, not as, a, as an addition to improving my life, but in the context of a ferocious enemy that snaps at my heels, who is under the authority of Christ. He is under my feet because I'm in Christ, I know that. But he nonetheless is described as the ruler of this world. And so we're going to look at these verses now in that context. Peter says, uh, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Get ready. Get your mind ready. Therefore, preparing. It's a reference to what's gone on in the previous, in chapter 1. He's saying, I've talked about that. Therefore, preparing your minds, being so minded, putting your faith fully, your hope fully in Christ. Don't conform. Don't give way. Stand firm, which is the heart of the letter. Preparing your mind. And it is a reference to what's been taught earlier in chapter 1, which makes me ask the question, what have I done about what I learned last week? Makes me ask that question. 
Serious, serious. He's saying, you be prepared. You don't just walk through your Christian life hitting something and then thinking, what should I do? He is saying, prepare your mind for action. In the original, the picture is of, a, of a, 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 an ancient uh, in their sort of long dresses and long, you know, uh, long gowns and stuff, bringing it in, tucking it all in because they're about to go on a long journey or do some work. That's the picture. He's saying, do that with your mind. Tuck it in your mind. Tuck it in. Get ready. Don't trip up. Don't be all flimsy and flappy about it. Tuck it in. Get it in. You're going in. You're going for action. You're going into battle. That's what. That's the, the, the kind of language of this scripture. And it makes me ask, what have I done? There was something Steph said last week about not um, about being a good dad with your kids and not uh, exasperating them by saying you're going to do something and they're not doing it. And I felt a, a, a touch of conviction there because the last few weeks I've been saying to him, I'm just not spending time with the kids. Now, I like to argue that away because I'm moving out and there's a whole host of reasons that I give for not doing that. But I haven't done anything about it. And I sat with Chloe yesterday, I said, Chloe's, oh, I just haven't spent some, you know, I just ain't spent no time with you really lately. I said, do you mind? She said, yeah, I'll do. Now, part of me was glad about that. And part of me thought, well, I haven't done anything about that. And it's okay, you know, it's all right, sunshine and all the rest of it. But there is an enemy who is ferociously after my children. He is ferocious after them to destroy their lives and corrupt them. It's just true. So what for me is, well, that's okay. And I'm not all down myself and I need to decide is, is that, you know, how to respond to that. But nonetheless, prepare your mind. And you do that by tucking it in, by getting ready so that you hit something knowing what you're going to do. That's what it's about. And in context, Peter's saying, what have you done about what I've said already? And I think it's fair to take that into the wider context of the Bible. What are we doing about the stuff that we hear week by week? We are a welfare church here. What are we doing? Are we tucking it in? Tuck it in. Get ready. Get ready for action. Let's get ready for action. It's get ready for action. We, we, we miss it. We, we're numb to it, I feel. I, I know it myself. I'm numb to it. I'm a, I, I don't know why that is. Well, I do know why that is, because I live a reasonably comfortable life, and physically in front of my face, life is good. And I am numb to the fact that I have an enemy out to destroy, who is keen, so keen to thwart God's purposes and ruin me, and in so doing, bring an end to, to God's intention and purpose for my life. It's preemptive; it's not reactive. So, little tip number one: get your mind ready for action. Very simple. And one way to do that is to answer, have some answers to questions like this: Do you know what you're going to say if you're married? When a doctor says to you, it's the mother or the baby. Do you know? Now, um, I'm not the most romantic of sorts. I was inspired by Steph's poem that he read out in sermon a few weeks ago. Wrote it down. It was very good. I'm not very romantic. But before we was married, we talked about stuff like that. All right? I was, well, some of you know how unromantic and hopeless I was. But nonetheless, that was a part, and I'm glad for it. Because I go into stuff now... So when him as our last babe, and there was, a, you know, it wasn't quite that situation. But nonetheless, I go into those circumstances clear. I've, prepare your mind for action. What are you going to do when you're in something like that? You just thought, well, my friends did this, and, and my emotions say that. No, no, you prepare your mind for action by allowing God's word to take its uh, aligning place in your life. And you make decisions about these things. Before certain things, you can't do that on everything. 
And you don't expect it of somebody who walks through the door in their faith, you know. The Bible says God unfolds his word. He unfolds his word. That's what it says in Psalms. It's the unfolding of his word that gives light to the simple. So it's about being able to answer questions. How do you respond when you fall out with leaders? How will you do that? I'm hearing story after story. I don't know if it's my age. I'm always on about my age. It's just like, see me rolling up in a sports car in a pair of leather trousers, you know, I'm really, really in a bad way, you know. <laughs> it's really, you know, got to. But just story after, you know, there, there's a guy, you know, wrote a book, wrote a book, plugged in New Frontiers. You know, good man. Fell out. Didn't get on, didn't agree. And now, nowhere. You know, still loving Jesus, not part of a church. I don't know how you do that. Jesus, I'm building my church. I don't know how you can love and follow him and not be a part of that. Not judgment of him. And uh, we see, see, we're friends, not gossiping about it, but just asking about people we know and stuff. I'll just know him now. Why is that? Well, because we have an enemy and because I, I would hazard a guess that preparation of the mind didn't take place. I, there are things in my brain. If I fall out with, some, with a leader, I've always believed this, unless it's immorality, and even then... If leaders fall into immorality, I think you work for unity. I don't think it's your ticket out of a church. I think you work for unity. I think that's the heart of the Bible. But my bottom line is, if I disagree with you, and I don't accept what you say, I stay if you tell me to stay. That's my bottom line. Lead guy, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, then you talk it through this conversation. But I don't jump shit. I don't go from one to another, to another, find somebody who agrees with me, find nobody who agrees with me, find them nowhere. It's, it's, it's about preparing your mind for action. Satan doesn't want his church to grow. He doesn't want the gifts of God's people utilised and fruitfully uh, uh, being uh, uh, rolled out in the church, touching the hearts and minds of people, communities being affected. He doesn't want that. Of course he wants us out. Of course he's about that. We prepare our mind with this stuff. We prepare our mind. How do you respond? How do you respond when your faith is as dry as old boots, like cabbage? Boring. Boy, I'm more excited. You know, uh, you know. I, I, there have been two occasions where I've sat in somebody's front room and I've sworn about my, my Christian life. I sat down. And I said, I'm fed up with this. Just, just at the end. What do you? Oh, I have a commitment. I have a bottom line preparation thing in my brain. I turn up. I vote with my feet every Sunday, and if they're small groups, every small group. I do that. That's what I've always done. Now I'm the most miserable, what's it to be around? I don't have many people come and say, Kev, how are you? Because I'm sitting there brooding and all steaming at the ears, you know. But I place myself through discipline, through a decision I've taken, I will not be found somewhere down the line not believing. There's friends of mine, a guy who was very influential in my life. He was an elder in, my, in the first church I was a part of. Good man, he, had a, he preached, man, he could preach. Wow, what a grasp of the Bible. His job, you know, his intellect was astounding. Incredible guy. He was a prophetic man, worship leader. You know, seeing some, some uh, uh, success in signs and wonders. What a guy. Nowhere. Thrown in. Don't believe it anymore. I don't believe it anymore. Don't believe it. Now, those things don't happen overnight, and there was a story and a history to that. But the guy has gone. I believe there's a work of grace in his life, but at the, where he is now, he's gone. How does that happen? Because we have an enemy. And because we are unprepared. I vote with my feet. And I would say that's good practice. Prepare your mind for action. Satan's there. Prepare your mind for action. It's not in fear, but Peter says, do this. 
This is good advice. There are other things we could say. I'll just say about marriage. What do you, you know, for somebody, it's like marriage, marriage is great. Although, I've been around a few years, and I don't want to, again, feel like an old man here, but it's just true. It don't always feel great. There are moments, many times, of just dryness, and the kids are hanging off you at the end of yourself. Man, you know, it's like that pressure, responsibility flows in. You suddenly feel, we have arguments now. We, we, me and them, man, we never say boo a goose. <laughs> so a bit more than boo now, I'll tell you. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, I think that's good. I like that. That's cool. And, so, and them's all right with that as well. But it's just, what, what do you do? What do you do then? Uh, the statistic I hear uh, is that, uh, um, and, and again, this is, is another story from Thursday night chatting. How's so and so? Oh, uh, um, oh, well, actually, I think you know. Um, oh, he's left his wife, two kids, and he's now shacked up with mum from school. How does that happen? Godly man. Church planter! Church planter! He's involved in that! How does that happen? Because Satan is a formidable enemy. And because we live our lives somehow feeling an invincibility. And it's wrong. Peter says, prepare your mind for action. We are not invincible in that. Don't misunderstand me. Who is greater in me is greater than he who is in the world. I know and understand and believe that truth. But I am not therefore complacent. I'm not complacent. I don't text girls. I just don't do it. I don't email girls. Very rare, very rarely, unless, you know, there's, that's, you know, pigeons have died and I've got no other way of communicating. You know, that's it. It's cut, you know, I just don't. If a girl, uh, I've changed on this, I think there's probably time when I wouldn't drop girls off anywhere. In London, I think it's a bit trickier because people don't have cars and late at night and stuff. But what happens now, if, if um, there's a girl needs a lift home and I'm on my own, I will ring M in the presence of the girl and say, babes, I'm just taking so-and-so home, is that okay? I let them know what's going on. I let this person know that my wife is the most important person here and she knows everything. I do that stuff because I'm preparing my mind for it. I learn that stuff. It's not you know, out of my brain. I pick this up off of other godly people. But because I, know, I feel more vulnerable now than I've ever felt. Why is that? I've been walking with God for 15 or so years. Church planning, name in a magazine, picture and all that. And yet, I feel, no, I feel so vulnerable. I feel so vulnerable. There is more muck in my brain now than there has ever been. Some of that is attributed to the stuff that Peter says in here. He says, don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Satan's not daft. He doesn't invent ways. You know, I don't get... Shopping isn't something that Satan tempts me in. You know, (laughs) I'm just not drawn to it. You know... I don't, it's not, you know, it's not a way of dealing with pressure for me, you know, that, that would put me under pressure, that would be testing God's work in my life, you know, horrible. But, you know, don't conform to your form. God knows, Satan knows my past. He was involved in my past. He knows where my vulnerabilities are. And there is more that goes on in my brain now than there ever was. That's weird. Because you think the longer you are a Christian, somehow there's this kind of moving together to a point of, probably when you hit this bit here, that's when you're with Jesus. I don't believe that. Peter Slater says, he says, um, the flesh wars against your soul. That bit of you that has not yet been fully brought under Christ. It wars against your soul. Passions and lusts burn within us. Why is that? Because we have an enemy without and there is an enemy within in the sense of our flesh, former things that we've given ourselves to. And there is, a, there is more in my brain now. I feel more vulnerable now. There was a time when I felt invincible. There's stories like I've just told you and I would take a stance of like, I don't know how you could do that. Not, in, not 
trying to be totally judgmental, but just like, Jesus is so great, how can you do that to him? And then I find myself hearing story after story, I think, from better men than me, more capable men than me, truly. I think, wow. Wow, it's sobering. Prepare your mind for action. It's not, it's not platform stuff, you know. It's not, you know, it's not kind of big and there's not guns blazing and, and fireworks going on, this kind of stuff. It's just things you do. It's just things you do. Don't text, I always phone. Things you do. Be ready. Talk, decide what you're going to do before you come into vulnerable situations where emotion just leads you and guides you. There are many other issues we could talk about. They're some of the questions that I've either asked myself or am conscious of at the moment. <coughs> Secondly, uh, sorry, being sober-mindedness, Peter says, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Sober-mindedness is something that you don't want to put on your... You know, if you were doing a dating thing, you wouldn't... I'm a sober-minded man. It means temperate. It's not about not getting drunk, it's being about temperate, calm, dispassionate. The original means this, cautious. Cautious, good that. Good to be cautious. Don't hear that much, do it. That's good to be cautious. It's very important. And interestingly, Peter says three times he speaks about sober-mindedness. It's about being collected in spirit. Three times he talks about being sober-minded. He says it in, in verse five. In, in, in uh, cha- uh, sorry, chapter um, one, Peter, uh, chapter five. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think sober-minded is, is about the ability to live wisely and in reality. I think that's what it kind of means. About living wisely, making good, sound judgments, not rash, but and in reality. I think it's about us making good assessments of things. Um, it's, you know, and in the feet of battle, it's, you know, it wouldn't make a great film. The great film is the nutter with a machine gun. You know, let him fly, shouting and running around. I watch a film like that, the sober-minded soldier sits. And occasionally moves. It's a boring, boring film. Peter says, be like that. Be sober-minded, be calm, temperate, and, um, and realistic. And I think that's very important. There's other things to say about that. Here's some tips on it. Honesty is everything. Sober-minded people are utterly honest. They don't big it up and they don't play it down. We're not good at that, some of us. One of the things I learned about Polish people, they like honesty. Right? They don't like enough, because one of the questions I asked, what is it that winds up about English people? I asked that of Polish people quite a lot. And um, I said, well, it's when they say, how are you? And, uh, and you start to tell them, and then they look bored. That. Because we say, how are you? And we expect to say, oh, fine. Because that's what we do, isn't it? But for them, actually, it's about, oh, you've asked me, I'm going to give an honest answer. Sober-mindedness is honesty. It's a, and, 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 and yet you have to, in the context of, of, of hardship and perseverance and taking a stand, we are not quick to simply go to the Scriptures. You know, but it's not just prepare my mind, well, there's a scripture. God works all things together for good. Well, no, no, no. Sober-mindedness gives space and room for someone to speak honestly and at length about the circumstances they're in. We shortcut it sometimes. We're quick to pray. Me and Emma's talking about, quick to pray. Oh, let's pray for you. And yet the circumstances, the magnitude, the enormity of that has failed to touch me. 
I am not, and I believe sober-mindedness, though it's, it's a dispassionate, objective thing, I think it can lead to compassion. I think it does, because you have an appreciation of either your own circumstances or someone else's. Sober-mindedness is a calm, objective view of a, set of, uh, of a situation. I think it leads to compassion. Peter, um, you know, Peter, they need compassion. You read on in the letter, he says, be tender-hearted, love the brotherhood, you know, be subject with all with respect. There's a tender-heartedness, there's a compassion that needs to be in these people as they persevere in this. And sober-mindedness can lead to that because it, because it means that when you pray... When you speak to people, it's not just a quick prayer. I'm terrible with this. So, so you know, there's massive things going on. And M says, Kev, what about this, what about this, what about this? And my line is, oh, it'll be okay. Now, I've failed to take a sober assessment of these things that are freaking my wife out. I've failed to really look at it long and hard and understand the implications of it. Sober mind, it's like Abraham says, it considered his body as, he considered his body as good. They thought about it. Look at this bag of wrinkles. 100 years old. Hopeless, dead, useless. And then the promise. He considered it. He thought about it. It's not just the promise. Oh, the promise. No, look at your body. It is dead. It makes the promise that much greater. It makes your need for God that much more. It makes us cry out with passion, God help me, in a way that I don't when I say, oh, it's just promise. Sober-mindedness, I think, leads us to a, a greater, because it's an accurate assessment, we think through the implications, oh, my life, God help me, God come for this person. I think we pray, I think compassion comes. Jesus, over Jerusalem, he says he wept for Jerusalem like sheep without a shepherd. Something about their loss, their leaderless. Just the, the, the situation, didn't just cry. But it was their, they just lost people. You know, even the religious guys, they think they've got it. They're hopelessly lost. They've touched his soul. And we're too quick. Oh, but God will save them. Oh, oh I think there's something to learn. I watched that film, that finger of God, Heidi Baker. You know, I was, you know. Just touched by the compassion. But the compassion came because she went and had a look. And she saw. And she sees children, you know, raped and orphaned and awful. And then a, and then a line, as some of you will know, this, this, this great woman, planted a thousand children, but her line is, you love the one in front of you. It's just compassion. And I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about her, I hadn't heard about it before coming to church, I'm thinking, well, I hope she's, you know, is it a husband? You know, how's that working theologically? I'm thinking, oh God. And I'm just, I'm, I'm assessing it, I assess things like that. And then I, I watch this film and I think, oh, man, full of compassion. Sober-minded, not just, oh, this is going on in another country. We're not God, we don't, we're not moved with emotion for all things. But we must be moved with a sober mind for some things. And I think sober-mindedness leads us to that. I need to finish, last thing. So, be, prepare your mind, be sober-minded, and then it simply says, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, just actually, on sober-mindedness, I think Peter was big on sober-mindedness because he weren't, actually. Because <laughs> there are many occasions in his life where he wasn't temperate and made good judgments. He blah, blah it out. No, oh, you're not going to go to the cross. Get behind me, say. I think, I think he learned saying, actually. I'm big, you know, just big out there. We think that's personality. Well, yeah, but be sober-minded. Peter learned something about that. It's important. Um, lastly, set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Live for the final whistle. Glory awaits. That's what he's saying. Peter is very conscious of this. There's four occasions in this letter. He speaks about salvation ready to be revealed in verse 5. He speaks here about uh, uh, um, the, um, when Christ is revealed in verse 7. He speaks about glory and honour in chapter 1 at the revelation of Christ. In chapter 4, he speaks about Christ's suffering, sharing in them, so you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter was a man who knew what it was to see Jesus a second time. And I think that's, a, that, that's why he's so stirred by the fact that you're, when you see him again, live for that moment. Because when he saw him again, the Steph, oh, I'll repeat Steph, but when he met Jesus for the second time, we've met him once, not physically, but by his spirit, we are drawn to him. Peter met him physically, Jesus died, he rose again, and during that 40-day period, he sought Peter out. And he says, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Steph preached it. He denied him three times, do you love me? And, and Jesus restores him. How on earth? This is why he is so passionate for this persecuted people. Live for the final whistle. It's glorious. It's glorious. Grace awaits you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's grace. This was a man, as Christ was on the cross, in his brain, I would, if it was anything like me, I would be thinking, Jesus is up there, and all he can think about is how I let him down. That's what, I, I don't know if he'd be wired like that, I would assume he would be. Conscious of the fact that the one he devoted himself to and, and so publicly gave himself for, and yet denied him, and now he's gone. Now he's gone. And yet on return, oh, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Grace, grace, grace. The, the, uh, the, the, one of the keys to pressing through and to persevering, to standing, to finishing this race, not just being an also-ran, to crossing the line. One of the keys is grace awaits you. Don't give up, grace awaits. That's what he's saying. <coughs> At the end of the day, our greatest asset is the truth that unmerited and unheard love is ours in Christ. And all my attempts to prepare my mind, and my failed attempts, and my mouth that shouts off and bigs up, or says things like, oh, it'll be right. All of that will be wiped away. Jesus said, do you love me? <sighs> Grace awaits. Grace awaits. It's a way of finishing. It helps us. It's our... It's the heart of our motivation to, to live for Christ. Just to finish, in putting everything in subjection to him, it says in Hebrews, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we will. We see at the moment two million or so believers of all shades and, and everything, and four million unbelievers. That's kind of the rough statistic. Not all things are subject to him. People live with long-term sickness, one day it will be subject to. We press through now because there will be a day when it is all under his feet. It is not under his feet yet. Satan is the ruler of this world, but one day, one day he won't be. He and all demonic halls will be locked into hell, alive, experiencing the judgment of God for all time, and all things will be made new, all tears will be wiped away, all wars and famines will cease, and it will all be under his feet. And Peter says, live for that. It's not just personal grace for us, but when grace is revealed, when the grace of God is finally and gloriously revealed in the Saviour, Jesus Christ, when a trumpet blast from heaven rushing in on the clouds, establishing his rule and his reign, live for that day. Live for it. Prepare your mind, be sober-minded, and live for that day. 
that is what Peter says, go into battle with these things. Hold them up in your heart. And that's his advice to them and, uh, and for us as well. I think that's enough. I'll just pray, Steph. That'll be all right. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for we are to be more conscious of your victory and what you have accomplished, Lord, than we are of our enemy. Lord, that is true. Thank you, Jesus, for your absolute uh, um, saving final work in our lives, for the security that we have in your finished work on the cross. Now, Jesus, Jesus, you are building your church against which the gates of hell will not stand. Lord, I pray, help us, God, to live wisely, to live in this way, Lord, with prepared minds, your truth alive in our heart, God, your truth working its way out in our activity, in our lives. Father, help us to be sober-minded and to, and to have a, a clear, objective view of things. And Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that much grace, much grace, much longing for grace, much longing for the day, Lord, when we are gathered to you. God, let that grow. Lord, let that not tire in us or grow weary in us, oh God, but longing for that day when you return. Oh God. Jesus. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thank you as we come to praise and worship. You are a victorious God. And we gather to our victorious Jesus, under which all things have been placed in heaven and on the earth. And we gather to you now in praise and worship. We thank you, Lord, for your victory. You are glorious and we love, we, we, we just love it, Lord, that you've gathered us to yourself. Thank you. Amen.